Welcome to This Wild Life, a conservation podcast that brings you up to date with frontline conservation efforts from around the world. Expect stories of wild adventures and get to know the characters who are dedicating their lives to protect our beautiful planet. We're here to bring the wild to you. Welcome to episode eight, everyone. My gosh, it's crazy how quickly I feel like the last seven episodes have just flown by. And honestly, we have an absolute corker of an episode coming up for you now. We have the one and only Shannon Wilde with us. And if you don't know, Shannon is a National Geographic wildlife filmmaker and has worked on a number of hugely ambitious projects. And it's safe to say, not only does Shannon have extreme talent, but she has also faced some crazy challenges. And today we're going to get a real good behind the scenes look at what it's really like to be a wildlife filmmaker. And I think Shannon might have some really interesting stories to share. So I have a feeling this episode might be slightly longer than our usual runtime, but I think it's for good reason. So Shannon, welcome to the podcast. You know, it's a complete pleasure to, to have you on. It is a pleasure to be here. I'm excited. And so to set the scene a little bit, and for everyone listening at home, Shannon, I imagine most people look at the work you do and think that perhaps you've always been a wildlife filmmaker for Nat Geo and doing these awesome projects. But you've also got huge experience as a graphic designer as well. So I suppose I'm intrigued to find out how you went from graphic design into into this industry. Yeah, uh, so my career line started officially um, as a graphic designer, but uh, the the love of wildlife has always been there since I was a little kid. Um, but so was the creativity aspect. So growing up, I kind of dabbled in which avenue do I want to go in? I didn't really think, oh, you could combine these two into a career. Um, so it was, do I want to study um, to be a vet or a marine biologist or something like that? Or do I want to be a graphic designer? And I ended up going down the path of graphic design. And then the wildlife uh, and animal aspect, I focused on more as, as a hobby, really, on the side. So I worked as a graphic designer for about nine years. And it's it definitely has an influence on my work and my style of work, um, my thought process, how I frame my shots, uh, that kind of thing. I like very graphic images and compositions. Um, I like negative space, you know, clean backgrounds, things like that. So it's definitely influenced how I shoot now. Um, but I actually got a camera for my graphic design business And then when I wasn't using it for the business, I was just going out and photographing wildlife and animals because that was obviously my natural um, interest. And it kind of just took off from there. I mean, I found quite quickly that I enjoyed it far more than graphic design. Mm. And it was this very dynamic, uh, immediate creative outlet that – you know, combined the the wildlife animal side. So it was this perfect marriage of of two passions for me. Well, it's definitely worked. Um, <laughs> you know, you, you've hit the highest of heights in wildlife filmmaking now and kind of the journey you've come on has really led to huge, hugely great things. And we will come back to your journey and the challenges of this really tough industry. But before we do that, I want to really get stuck into some of your projects. And one that I'm particularly excited to be able to talk to you about is your recent expedition to southern India in an attempt to film melanistic leopards or or a singular melanistic leopard for Nat Geo. And now to put it lightly, I understand um, there's probably no words to describe what an expedition this was and turned out to be. So please tell us how on earth you managed to film this incredible animal and what on earth was the whole experience like? 
Oh my goodness. I mean, where do I start? <laughs> so to give you some, some reference, leopard in general are hard to film anyway. They are elusive, solitary animals. If they don't want to be seen, they won't be seen. Yeah. Um, so that's challenge one. The next layer of challenge is we were looking for one specific animal and that was a melanistic leopard, uh, which we refer to as a black panther. Mm -hmm. uh, next challenge was that he lived in an incredibly dense forest in southern India. And so it's one thing knowing he's in a certain area. It's a very different thing to A, find him, B, find him in a position that we could film and C, film him doing something interesting uh, because they are cats, which means they do a lot of nothing. <laughs> and, you know, the chances of you being there and, and capturing footage of them doing something interesting enough to make an entire documentary out of it is a huge challenge. Um, and especially because the forest that he lived in was very restricted so we could only access certain parts whereas his territory overlapped that section and a section we couldn't access and also we could only go into this forest between certain hours of the day oh, okay. and being a cat he would obviously get very active uh, at sunset and into the evening which we could not film so we spent 18 months in the field on this project and we needed every single second of it to make a one hour documentary. And to be honest, we could have spent another 18 months there easily um, trying to, you know, capture his life and his behavior and his challenges. So it's, it's the hardest project I've done to mm -hmm. date for many reasons mm -hmm. on top of that. <laughs> um, yeah. So many reasons. He, he also had some challenges himself in that he suffered a very severe injury and I don't want to <clears throat> give the documentary away. It is out now. So I'd certainly encourage people to oh, watch it. Yeah. Um, it's on Nat Geo wild. It's called the real black Panther. Um, and we, we document uh, his, his journey and challenge as a very unusual and rare leopard. Mm -hmm. But uh, as you alluded to, I also faced some challenges on top of that in that uh, I managed to break my back about, oh my gosh. Uh, what was it, six months into the project. So that was not great. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And I'm actually still recovering from that two years later. So, and how, how did you do this? Were you filming? Yeah, so I was out filming. Uh, we had word of a sighting of the panther. Mm -hmm. So my uh, driver was very excited to, to get to the sighting. So he started driving very, very quickly. And to give some context, we're in an open vehicle. It's essentially a safari vehicle, um, open. Uh, my filming equipment is bolted into the vehicle. It's quite secure, uh, very large, very heavy. And then I'm basically just on a bench seat behind it um, so that I can sort of move around easily while filming. And so he started to take off towards this sighting and hit a bump on this dirt road in the forest that he didn't notice. And I just went flying basically. Oh, no. So I started levitating and the world kind of slowed down. And then I came crashing down and managed to fracture a couple of vertebrae uh, in the thoracic region, so between my shoulder blades, mm. um, and then had four bulging discs and also severe nerve damage. So that's the thing that is taking the longest to recover from and that I'm still dealing with is a lot of um, muscle locking and nerve pain right up into my neck and then it sort of traveled down my shoulder into my dominant arm and so I had uh, nerve pain to the end of my fingertips oh, on the left which for me is my dominant mm -hmm. side so I actually ended up um, having very limited use in this arm and atrophied 
uh, quite a bit. So it's been a lot of physical therapy and hospital stays and traction and um, nerve block injections and, oh, my goodness, so much painkillers. Um, but I am happy to say uh, just over two years on, I am off all painkillers at the moment. Mm. So as long as I behave myself and not overdo it, which I tend to do, <laughs> um, so as long as I'm not doing too much lifting, then um, – I'm doing kind of okay. Yeah. So, yeah. Oh my gosh, what a story. It's been a journey. I think I started this podcast actually thinking, you know, um, there's going to be some challenges and you, you, you hinted to it as well when I first chatted to you. But, wow, okay, that is, that's crazy. And I'm so glad you're on the road to recovery now after such a major injury especially only six months into a project as well. Um, and what I was about to, and, and what I really want to ask now is you put yourself through this trauma to film these documentary films. And we all know that they have such a huge um, impact in conservation. So what do you, in your eyes, what is the role of these documentary films in conservation? Oh, and I actually think I've lost you. <laughs> Oh, no, you're back. You're back. Okay, good. Oh, hello. My power actually just went out and then just came back on. Welcome to Africa. <laughs> <laughs> so I was just, I don't know whether you heard, but yeah, I was just asking, you know, what is the role of these documentary films in conservation? Um, the end result is of this project was truly a masterpiece. Mm. So so where does that stand in, in, in conservation? I think there's it kind of lends to any visual communication and that is we're trying to create an emotional reaction from the viewer so that they care about something. Obviously, if you don't know about something, you can't care about it. Uh, but unless you learn about uh, and can empathize with say a, a, an animal or a habitat um, or, or the challenges that they're facing then you know there there won't be action unless people are educated about it so certainly from a personal perspective I grew up on wildlife documentaries um, this is certainly before before the internet before YouTube and Netflix and um, social media so it was, you know, National Geographic magazine, it's books, it was documentaries. And I would just pour over this and absorb all this information and be so passionate and actually knowledgeable about all these species in places I'd never been to before I even got there because I'd, I'd taken in all this information. So for me, it's, it's the next step of that. I'm, I'm so fortunate that I now get to travel to these incredible places and see these amazing animals and document them. But the, the hope is that it then leads to that same result, which is inspiring other people who may never get the chance to see that animal with their own eyes. Um, certainly, potentially not in the wild or visit these countries, but they still need our protection and that's only going to happen if people come together and are aware of it and care so that's the ultimate goal for me yeah mm, absolutely and I'm sure people listening to this will go okay yeah this work is hugely inspiring and even just the opening sequence and the trailer it kind of gives me goosebumps it's it's pretty incredible now it's clear that some of the shots, um, both with your recent work and um, all of your other work as well, it meant it has kind of meant you being very much up close and personal with the animal. But I'm fascinated. In terms of the melanistic lepers that you've been filming, were you filming predominantly in a truck or on foot or, or what was it? Only from a truck actually yeah so it's a very strict forest we were not allowed out of the vehicle at all whether an animal was nearby or not and so I can tell you as a woman that fa that 
gives you some challenges when you go into a forest and you're going in in six hour, eight hour, ten hour oh, chunks. Okay. Yeah, um, it's a little trickier for us than it is for a, a guy that um, maybe needs to go to the bathroom and can do it from standing on a vehicle. Um, yeah, <laughs> there's some unique challenges for us. Um, I I I learned very strong bladder control let's just say that <laughs> yeah I can absolutely um, imagine oh but God. yeah no not allowed out of the vehicle whatsoever so there are certainly some places here in Africa where we have a lot more flexibility we might be filming from on foot um, or a vehicle or a combination of both but this instance was just from the vehicle and not only that just from the road so we couldn't even slightly pull off the road to position our vehicle um, and also our gear was bolted into one side so if there was a sighting on the other side of the vehicle that the camera wasn't on it was very tricky for us on these narrow roads to try to turn the vehicle around especially mm -hmm. because we don't want to disturb the animal um, or the path that we're on may not be wide enough to turn the vehicle, so we might have to drive away from the sighting, turn the vehicle around, come back. I mean, you know, it can be all over by then. So this project had some really unique challenges and very strict rules that we had to abide by. Um, and another reason why it's so challenging. Um, one of the beauties of Africa is there are a lot of places that you can have more flexibility in, say, positioning a filming vehicle or, mm. um, you know, getting closer to an animal if they're comfortable with that. And that always comes down to the situation. So this documentary was very much uh, a lot of long lens work, but we did have situations where eventually as he became used to our presence, uh, we're behaving with respect to the animal. We're not harassing it with the vehicle. We're, we're staying quiet. He obviously eventually realized, okay, this isn't a threat and becomes quite comfortable. So there were periods of time where he would come out into the open near the vehicle and literally just walk next to us for, you know, 10 minutes. And it's two or three meters from the vehicle. It is incredible. And that's a choice by him. So that for me is some of my favourite footage, um, which uh, is what features a lot in the documentary, but especially in the trailer, is this beautiful front-on sort of almost eye contact in certain situations. He basically, I would position the vehicle ahead of where he was walking towards so that I could film back as he came towards us. Um, and he just kept doing his thing and walking along and looking in the camera nice and confident and just beautiful footage. So, I mean, you know, I'm screaming inside while trying to maintain uh, a steady camera and uh, manual yeah. focus as he approaches. So, uh, yeah, yeah, it's a bit of a balancing <laughs> act inside. You have to stay calm and then afterwards you, you realise, yeah. okay, that was amazing. Oh my gosh, I can completely imagine. I get so excited when I see a leopard in the bush and I just cannot even imagine what it's like to be able to be in front of one of these animals. Yeah, it's a very, very beautiful, special cat. And one of the questions I have is, how do you get that fine line between not scaring the animal off um, making sure that you're getting close enough and also staying alive. So, so how do you manage all of that? So the safety of the animal is paramount, just like our safety is paramount. So those two things are ensured by a lot of experience and behaving appropriately for each individual situation. And that varies from species to species, but even within species from character of individuals. So it's, it's learning and picking up on body language of the animal. So there are just certain animals that you would not exit a vehicle near, like you just would not do it. Um, and there are others, if you spend long enough with them and you can 
see that they're very comfortable with you, you can then start to, for example, if I uh, am filming some rhino and I'm on foot and I'm in, you know, quite a distance, if the animal is extremely calm, then I will very gradually start to get closer and closer if I can. And if the animal is accepting of that, and you can tell this by their body language, quite easily. I mean, they will either, same with elephant, you know, they'll either keep grazing or if they're, if they're not comfortable with the situation, you'll notice that maybe they start. The ears of an elephant is going to go out or a rhino maybe will kick a little bit or just become very aware. They will vocalize um, or just leave. Most of the time animals won't. Uh, attack they will leave the situation and that is not an ideal scenario for a wildlife filmmaker because I'm not going to get very much footage if I'm scaring the animals off all the time so it's generally a very slow and educated process um, and that varies from animals so sometimes it is long lens work and sometimes the animal does not care about you and it in those moments where an animal chooses because it's always their decision so if that animal chooses to let you into you know within a certain distance of their personal space and still is behaving naturally i mean that is the ultimate privilege for us and it allows us then to get a really intimate uh, experience with our footage to then share with other people because that's where there's something about getting those kind of shots versus all the long lens shots only that really translates to people on screen. So we don't want to be harassing the animals, but we want to be getting intimate enough footage that it, it has an effect, an emotional effect on people that they can feel something for it that they can feel a connection well I can (laughs) yeah it's obvious that you do manage to get this connection with the people that look at your work Um, and from a technical perspective but for those of us who aren't quite as knowledgeable about filmmaking and photography um, are there any environments that make it incredibly challenging and, and difficult to work um, in in order to get these shots yes so many um forests are, are tricky because they can be very dark and as a cinematographer and a photographer that's you know your language is light and so th- that situation can be very tricky um so that definitely comes down to technology and equipment Uh, knowing your equipment and knowing how to make the best of a situation. Um, But, you know, it's also times, choosing your times of day. Um, And that then has to translate to animals' behaviour. So it's one thing to have um, beautiful light in the mornings and afternoons but if you have an animal that's active at night only or, say, in the middle of the day for some reason and you've got very harsh light, you have to make the best of the situation at the time. It's They don't work to your schedule. They don't work to your convenience. It's not obviously setting up a shot and, okay, let's do it mm. again, which would be so great. <laughs> <laughs> but obviously that's the reason we love it because, you know, I don't know what I'm going to see that day. I don't know what I'll capture. It's always a challenge, but it's very dynamic and so rewarding. So the challenge is what creates the reward at the end of the day. When you really capture something, you know you've worked hard for it. It's not just how hard you've worked that day, but it's all the years prior of experience with your gear um, and equipment, with animal behavior with working in the field, all these things combine to put you in a position where you can make decisions uh, on the fly as they happen. And then that's what creates, um, you know, really great technically great footage, but 
it's then the passion that comes through that's going to make the emotionally or the not so technical aspects of that footage or photograph really um, speak to a viewer because they're not analyzing so much the technical uh, like we are. You know, I might love an image because I spent so long trying to get it or I'm like, this aspect is technically perfect. Um, whereas the viewer will maybe connect more with an image that is emotionally charged and less technically accurate. So I, it took me a few years to learn that, especially in the early days, because I want everything to be technically perfect. Um, but that maybe isn't getting the end result that you want out of the viewer. And talking about shots that connect and stir emotions. Yeah. I want to go on to your work filming the Komodo dragon in Indonesia. For our listeners who aren't clued up, they're a type of monitor lizard. They are enormous. They can take down a buffalo with one bite through a fairly nasty toxin in their saliva. And the reason why I'm asking this is because they happen to live on Komodo as well. Komodo Island. Funny that really (laughs) and I've got to say it's surrounded by some of the most stunning coral reefs on the planet and I'm a little bit obsessed with the place from a diving perspective so the work you've done with these Komodo dragons what's it like to be so close to this enormous reptile so reptiles for me are the ultimate I this is how I started my journey. I have always been fascinated and passionate about reptiles and I was really involved in the herpetological community within Australia before I left. And so when I started taking pictures, I started taking pictures uh, of my pet reptiles at the time. And so that's actually how I got my start before it even evolved into anything else. So for me, that's my language. I I understand reptile body language and behavior and all that kind of thing. Um, so Komodo dragons for me are the ultimate. They are the pinnacle reptile to see in the wild. And they'd been on my bucket list for so many years. And actually that was the first time I went and saw them in the wild and documented them was as I left Australia, I spent a month in Indonesia and then continued on to Africa and never came back <laughs> to Australia. So, um, and then I've managed to, to document Komodos a few times since then. But I mean, they're so impressive. And the shot yeah. that I've seen that is that kind of, I was like, I've got to ask Shannon about this. It's of you crouched down just behind one of these mm. guys. You see, how do you manage to interact with them so well? They are absolutely huge. Absolutely, I mean they're they're massive, um, and it helps that I'm kind of small, <laughs> so <laughs> it makes them look even more impressive. Um, yeah, I was fortunate to go uh, there oh, a few years ago to film them, and actually had a crew that came to film me filming them. So I have um, these photographs, but also footage of of me working with them. And um, in that situation, it's quite unique because, you know, we have to get permits. Um, we have um, park officials with us at all times. We get closer and uh, specialised access that a tourist wouldn't get. And so obviously off camera and sort of in in the background are um, people monitoring how we behave around them and you know I guess ensuring our safety but for me like I said I'm I'm quite experienced with reptiles so I didn't I don't go into that situation afraid or overreacting I'm understanding their body language I know when they're completely relaxed or just being curious and I've had I had them come up to and lick my camera actually wow. which was incredible like on the beach and you know there's there's a different body language if they're approaching uh prey 
than if they're inspecting something. And the only way they can inspect something is with their mouth. They don't reach out their hand and touch it. It's the tongue going out, picking up the scent. Um, They have a forked tongue like snakes. Mm. And so that essentially gives them smell and taste in stereo. And so that's how they can really determine the direction and precise area of, um, of that sense. And so they will taste an object as that tongue goes back into the mouth. At the the roof of their mouth, they actually have what's called a Jacobson organ. So it um, interprets the information with a lot more detail than what you and I can. And uh, so they you know, taste my camera lens and realize, okay, that's an inanimate object. I don't want to eat that. That's boring. So, (laughs) you know, they just want to establish what is that quite curious animals. And then, you know, start looking around at something else. So really a magical experience for me. Um, Very much a highlight for sure. And it certainly sounds like an incredible project. And I think we could just say that for all of your projects. And I wish we had the time to chat through all of them. Um, Because that's really just the tip of the iceberg. But the other thing I really want to chat to you about as well is your business venture, which is Wild in Africa. And for those that don't know, you create gorgeous bracelets with semi-precious stones in order to generate funds for charities and organisations in the world of conservation. So, Shannon, I'm kind of interested about how this came about. And uh, yeah, that that absolutely stunning, by the way. Thank you. So that's quite an interesting story, how it started as well. Um, I apparently don't do things by halves and (laughs) (laughs) that includes uh, injuring myself or, um, you know, working myself to exhaustion, which was this case. So um, a few years after moving to Africa, um, I was still trying to establish myself in this uh, industry. I just started filming. So I initially started with just stills photography I did that for 10 years in Australia before packing up and moving to Africa, essentially on a whim. And I had to start all over again because I had no networking um, contacts here. I didn't have a body of work that represented Africa. So I basically was working for free um, initially again and establishing myself. And in doing so, I just worked myself to complete exhaustion. So I was getting, after a few years, getting to the point where I was making great contacts and getting, starting to get paid work and getting very busy. And I I wasn't at a point where I wanted to say no to any opportunity that came along. And I find, you know, I'd been sick quite a few times in my travels. I'm working in very remote areas, um, sometimes with very limited nutrition um, access to medical care or even like fresh clean water so there were quite a few times where I got quite ill and then I was just not really recovering properly pushing through work and working working and finally my body just said okay we've reached our limit um, we're done and I collapsed in the Masai Mara on assignment in the middle of nowhere oh my uh, by myself God. actually and Um, I'm not sure how long it took until I was found, but I had gravel embedded in my face. So it was maybe an hour or something like that. And in an area with lions around. And so not a great situation, Mm -hmm. but very lucky that it was only that. You know, my body just said no. Um, So then I was medevaced out to the capital, which is Nairobi. I was in hospital Mm. for a while and we discovered that I have a heart condition, which I didn't know about, and that I'd just pushed my body beyond all limits. And my adrenal uh, Mm. glands had shut down, um, everything. My body was just starting to, yeah, completely break down. Mm. So that led Mm. to me being bedridden for about six months. And it was a very slow process of recovery. So the first three months... Mm. Um, I did absolutely nothing. I slept essentially all of the time. I mean, I was, I could barely eat. I couldn't, 
it was it was not good um and I really had no mental clarity whatsoever but Mm. as that started to come back so after about three months while I couldn't do much physically I was back mentally and so Mm. now I was quite frustrated because my body wasn't keeping up with my mind in that I wanted to be out in the field I wanted to be contributing to all these amazing wildlife organizations that I'd met and worked with along the way and I was not at a point where I could pick up a camera I certainly couldn't go out into the field I mean I could barely walk still but I I was so creatively frustrated that I was looking for something to do to keep me occupied and over the years I'd built up quite a um a diverse and eclectic bracelet collection from different cultures and countries. And it had kind of become a trademark on my, certainly on my Instagram, people were always asking me about it. (laughs) So I had all these bracelets and I just started pulling them apart and reassembling them and designing them. And, and I found that really enjoyable. And then I thought, if I could sell this, this could be an amazing way to raise money for conservation. And that way I'm contributing to uh, these organizations and to wildlife while I can't be out there doing it in the way that I'm used to, which is documenting them. Mm-hmm. And so I set up a little Etsy store and started, you know, selling a few here and there, and it actually did better than I expected. Mm. So like I said, I don't do things by halves. <laughs> and so I'm like, okay, I'm doing, I'm doing it. I, registered yeah. a business name, created it. Yeah. Um, my background in graphic design helped in that I, you know, built my website. Could, I could obviously take the photographs of the of the bracelets. And, yeah, so three years later we started in May of 2017, officially mm-hmm. registered as a business. And we now have um, – 10 charities that we collaborate with. So I actually have seven active right now and three in the pipeline that are uh, about to launch, which I'm really excited about. Um, So it's all incredible wildlife or animal-related organisations that I know personally. I know what they do. I've worked with them in the field. I've seen how amazing they are, how they need funding, that that funding gets utilized i'm i'm not dealing with org- massive organizations where it's you know a lot of administrative costs or funds are distributed out amongst you know a lot of different uh areas it's it's organizations that every single dollar counts and that it goes it goes really far so uh, certainly for the the groups I work with here in Africa. I have one in India, one in Fiji currently, um, and one uh, about to launch in Australia. But certainly from Africa, an African perspective, say, we sell in US dollars. So immediately that is going a lot further here in Africa, just from a general cost of living standpoint. So when I first, I tally all the donations Uh, and distribute them twice a year and that very first um, donation that I was able to give out I mean obviously it was small but I can't tell you how excited Mm. I was and how good that felt to know that I you know people are actually interested in buying this to contribute and then being able to give that money to these organizations who so desperately need it and do incredible work And the beauty of this is, you know, if I wanted to create a a brand that was going to sell a product, I I didn't want to be ambiguous about how much we give or or what is Mm. is given. So and that's actually really easy to do. I could say, you know, we give this much percentage of profits or net proceeds or all this wording that does it doesn't clarify what actually ends up going to that charity. And I I didn't want to do that because there are easily ways, certainly as a starting business, there are so many ways that I am trying to build the business that I'm not making any Mm. profit. So 
then I'm not I'm not donating anything either. So for me, it was really important that from day one, purchase one, money is going to these organizations. So we actually give 50% of the purchase price. So if you buy a bracelet for $40, you know that $20 immediately, straight up $20 is going to that specific charity. So I custom design a bracelet for each charity and it relates to the work they do. Um, so it's very personal. And so a customer can go onto the website and say, okay, I would love to contribute to habitat protection. That's important to me. And they could buy the Wild Tomorrow Fund bracelet, which has a beautiful little Africa charm. And they know that $20 from that sale is going to these guys who are purchasing land and protecting it and rewilding it or preventing it from being cleared, all this really important work. And so there's different organizations that do different things. So we support um, rhino conservation. There's anti-poaching projects. There's uh, equine rescue. um, So many opportunities for, you know, people to, choose something that they are particularly passionate about or if they're buying it as a gift that maybe the recipient is really passionate about. And so we're super proud that you can actually feel good about this product. You get something beautiful for your money, but you're doing something really good for it as well. So our tagline is um, hashtag wear your karma. And so that's what it's really about. We're, we want people to have something for their money but know that they're doing something really effective with it and actually I'm sat here on video call with Shannon you guys at home obviously can't see but I wish you could Shannon literally's got so many of these bracelets on and they look so cool <laughs> yes I can do it for you. <laughs> and also I'm really pumped because our next guest is actually one of the organisations you have a bracelet for, Invictus K9, the K9 anti-poaching unit. And all of the other organisations that Shannon's done a bracelet for, they are incredible, so hardworking and making a massive impact in the world of conservation. It's, it's awesome. I feel really privileged to know these people too because I I mean I trust these people and these organizations because I know them personally and they work so hard uh one of the organizations that I work with is actually the Zambian carnivore program and I I met them on a National Geographic assignment I was tasked to go up there and document what they were doing and I saw how great the work they were doing but I saw how oh my goodness, they work so hard and they live in the toughest conditions. I mean, I the, the field that I'm in, it can be extremely challenging as well, but there are timelines to these projects. So even if it's 18 months in India in a little shack with, um, you know, basic uh, living, it comes to an end and I get to go home. You know, these guys were living and breathing Mm. all of this research and living in such basic conditions. And when they get money in, it's just, it's going straight back into, um, you know, great, we can buy a, um, you know, a a VHF collar with this so that we can track this animal Mm. so we can get more information, which will lead to knowing their habitat and then protecting them. Mm. And, you know, they don't even think about putting it into, oh, I could, Mm. you know, maybe have a, a half decent cot to live on in my oh, tent. Absolutely. <laughs> it's I know. nuts. I know. They work so hard. So I'm, mm. I left that assignment um, for National Geographic going, guys, I have to make a bracelet for you guys. Yeah. <laughs> it's like I just I need to see more yeah. money going to you because they really deserve it. Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. And I've done 20 of these. So, uh, you know, the stories that have coming out of um, what, people are doing um often the dangers of actually doing this work as well it's just incredible so yeah yeah I completely agree with you now moving back a little bit towards the production of the bracelets are they made locally or or what are you how do you make them so I started out making yes everything myself by hand um and 
Yeah. So that eventually got to the point where I, I, a great problem to have. I could not keep up with the, you know, the volume of it. And so I started needing help. So I actually have some ladies that help me now. Thank goodness. Um, <laughs> and I have a metal atelier who, so I custom design all the metal components and he makes them and does such a beautiful job with that. And then um, we have a few ladies, so some that specialize in sort of the beads side of things. And then with our charity bracelets, there are some, uh, they're adjustable styles. So there's some specific knots that go into it. So we have a lady mm. that specializes in the knots. Um, yeah, so it's we're very small. It's a very small team. Um, but we are definitely growing. And so we have, they're made, um, I design everything. So even though I don't make them all now because I finally get a chance to go back out into the field and do filming assignments and, and that kind of thing, um, I still will take all the beads, decide how I want it to look, design it initially, and then send it to the ladies to make. And so it's here in South Africa and uh, also in Turkey we've expanded too, and then we warehouse in both. So if you order in South Africa, then obviously we courier it from here. But the rest of our orders actually go out from Turkey now because the first few years I had – and I was doing everything so but I had so much trouble sending international orders from South Africa our postal system is so unreliable (laughs) and expensive and I just had so many troubles with such patient customers not getting their orders they were getting stolen or they are sitting in a post office somewhere who knows um, just there was no consistency to it. So I finally had to bite the bullet and, and find a solution that was going to um, be functional and trustworthy. So I ended up finding a family-owned um, business in Turkey and the lady there uh, keeps the stock and then she does sends out all the orders for me. Um, so, oh, okay. which has been a game changer. I mean, people mm-hmm. are getting things, you know, quickly within a few days of ordering, which is what our customer expects, mm-hmm. as opposed to three months later. And we're like, we're trying to find it. <laughs> <laughs> so it's been, it has been a very interesting journey uh, going into an e-commerce business imagine, yeah. and producing a product. And I've learned so much, um, but we're in a really good place now where, I can focus on um, our new charity collaborations, designing new styles, um, getting them made, and generally the marketing side because I've got the graphic design background and I have the social reach um, that I, you know, I can manage that marketing Mm -hmm. side of things and creating the content and then I can let someone else who knows better than me manage the inventory side and getting it to customers and customer service and all that kind of stuff so yeah oh it's an awesome project so everyone you know go and get involved and going back over to your filmmaking projects how long is your to-do list in terms of species and places that that you want to work you know it just must almost be endless Definitely. The bucket list is still very, very long. (laughs) Um, The Galapagos Islands is really high on my wish list and that was actually supposed to happen this year. So hopefully that's uh, going to push into next year instead. Um, Mm. But as a reptile fan, obviously the marine iguanas there are are really interesting to me, um, especially because they're you know, it's it's a reptile that's utilizing the ocean and eating the algae under the water in these freezing cold waters and then have to come up and thermoregulate on the rocks and then go back down and I'm desperate to document that mm. and see it for myself. Um, and there was a new iguana species discovered there in the last few years, uh, a pink iguana. So, wow. I mean, okay. that for me is just magic. Um, so hopefully that comes to fruition soon. Uh, I'm supposed to be 
in Spain right now. Um, oh, no. But obviously that got cancelled and pushed to next year, <laughs> running some photographic workshops. Um, I also tour uh, with Nat Geo Live, so I do speaking engagements as well. So that will mm. all push into starting January 2021 again. Uh, from documentary perspective, we have a few projects on the go and um, thankfully things are finally starting to happen here in South Africa with permits that we can um, go into the field in bits and pieces. So oh, okay. for National Geographic, we currently have a lion documentary in the works. So um, principal photography was supposed to finish about now, but uh, that's obviously been extended. So it depends on how that goes and, and the global situation as to how long it'll take to finish that but it's actually another very special animal it's um focused on um the white lions of oh, south africa wow. so very very rare there's only three in the wild um that are truly wild and it's those three that we're trying to document uh, at the moment so also proving to be a very challenging project uh, but hopefully that's going to be worth it in the end as well. <laughs> so, yeah, quite a few things. Planet Earth, uh, some BBC stuff in the pipeline, um, some Disney stuff, mm. some Netflix stuff. So there is a lot uh, on the horizon mm. that, um, yeah, hopefully we can get back out into the field and get onto very soon. Mm. Well, it's safe to say 2021 is looking like it's going to be pretty exciting for you. Now, I think my next question is, and I couldn't have you on here without asking this, because I'm sure we have some budding filmmakers or photographers um, listening in. And what is your tips or advice um, yeah. for people who want to get into this notoriously tough industry? Yeah, and I get this question a lot. Um, and I actually love getting this question from um, younger girls or teenage girls that are are seeing, okay, this is actually an option. Um, and especially when I do my speaking tours and, and, you know, I get to do meet and greets afterwards and I meet girls and they tell me, this is what I want to do. And I love being able to say, great, because you can. Mm. Um, this is, you know, wildlife cinematography specifically has been a very male-dominated industry and like so many industries and that is changing. So it's really wonderful to see more women um, getting into this line of work. It is very physical, it's very challenging, but there is no reason that a woman, you know, can't do it. Um, and that's not something that I looked at when I went into this. I, I'm i the kind of person where if, I, if I'm interested in something, then I give it 150% um, and I kind of just put the blinders on. So I'm not thinking about, um, you know, this is not socially, this is done or, or anything like that. Mm. Um, and to be honest, I've, I, I've definitely had pushback over the years from men in the industry, mm. uh, but for the most part, there's been a lot of support out there. Um, and so from a female perspective, if you're being challenged in, say, a not-so-female-driven industry, it is purely insecurity from the other person's part. And I think that relates to um, whether that's gender or in any situation, career-wise or whatever. It's, it's the other person's issue, not yours. So try not to take things personally. Uh, but ultimately, it's about perseverance. I think... It does seem like a very glamorous or desirable job, um, but it's going to be the ones that are are so persistent about keeping at it that are going to set them apart from the others that give up along the way who maybe don't want to put in the work. So, for example, if it's, say, National Geographic photographer, okay, that's the end goal. That's not the end goal. That can't be the end goal. That's a great um, goal to have, but it's like part of the journey. Mm. It can't be you do that and then, okay, then what? It's you have to have put in for me, it's I'm in year 17 um, of this 
wildlife photography and cinematography journey. And I only started working with National Geographic like five years ago. So are you willing to put in the 12 years in the lead up, which, you know, along the way, there's a lot of sacrifices to that. So it can't be the end goal. You have to be in it for the journey. You have to be in it for wanting to be out there with the wildlife, documenting it. It has to, the passion has to be there and it has to be fulfilling something in you, whether you get that notoriety that comes with being associated with some brand or your work coming out. It it can't be about that because then you'll never, you, you won't get there because like I didn't go in thinking I'm going to, you know, make wildlife documentaries for this brand. It's whatever it takes. I just want to be out there with the wildlife and my way of communicating is visually. So this is how I can do it and turn it into a job and I want to do it in the best way possible. And when I was faced with challenges and there's been so many, I mean, so many financial challenges Mm -hmm. and, um, health challenges and you know I've had a lot of legitimate understandable reasons to give up along the way and even to myself but certainly from the outside of other people that would have would have reacted with you know what you gave it a really good go we understand you know if if you know you didn't want to continue this I mean I I've my life has been on the line several times, but um, certainly you you definitely sacrifice a lot. But for me, that was never a question. If I'm bedridden for six months, I'm not thinking, well, I don't ever want to go back to this. I'm thinking, when can I get back to this? Yeah. Like I'm counting down the days until I can be back out into the field and, you know, whether I'm getting paid or not, whether it's a job or not, I just want to be there and doing it. And that's what's going to set you apart from the person that gave up as soon as the first challenge or the 10th challenge came along in the journey. Year 10 goes by and you're not able to still pay your bills yet, which was certainly me Mm. um, easily. I mean, 10 years in and then I packed up, sold everything I owned, moved to Africa, started again and then had no money and was having my electricity shut off and I couldn't pay to put fuel in my car and my food was going off in my fridge because I had no power and I didn't even have a enough to buy a plane ticket home to Australia when I did want to give up so I'm glad now because I it wasn't you know I had to go through that to get to where I am now and I appreciate it so much more if I get a paid job I'm like yes (laughs) that's an added bonus onto being able to do what I want to do for longer you know I can pay my bills now awesome it's um you know icing on the cake yeah you know Shannon thank you so much for sharing that because I think a lot of people think that it's an overnight success and it's a really glamorous job and exactly what you said but yeah it's quite inspiring to know that the amount of challenges that you've been through to reach the you know the pinnacle of wildlife filmmaking it's it's really really impressive for our listeners at home I come from an elite elite sporting background and although I'm not in the wildlife filmmaking industry you can definitely see the the parallels there and I can absolutely empathise with your story. So thank you so much. I'm sure a lot of people are going to be inspired off the back of your words there. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure. I mean, if, especially for young girls, I really, if this is something that you want to get into and there are some incredible uh, young female photographers and filmmakers out there who, I mean, I didn't pick up a camera till my mid-20s. Um, so they're already way ahead of the game. And, you know, if you have a clear vision of what you want, but also it's don't feel the pressure that you have to find out what that is that you want or are passionate about immediately. I mean, I had a 10-year, almost 10-year career in graphic design before I went into this. So there's no rules, just it's never too late to follow your dream or your passion or to find out what your passion is and uh, and follow it. I, I really want people to know that. Oh, what a message to finish on. And 
it goes without saying it's been a complete pleasure and privilege to chat to you today what an insight into your work I'm you know I think I started off this podcast episode thinking this is going to be interesting but actually I've been blown away at um, the insight you've given us so so thank you very much for that we we really appreciate it absolute pleasure thank you so much and uh, stay healthy and stay safe you've listened to this wildlife podcast please do head over to our instagram or facebook page to have your chance to win a wild in africa bracelet all details are on our social media it's super easy to enter and the bracelet was designed by shannon for invictus canine a canine anti-poaching unit Don't forget to tune in next week too because we actually have Jay Crafter, co-founder of Invictus Canine and Jay will take us right to the front line of the war against wildlife crime. Now our main priority is to share the wildlife conservation stories that must be told. So as usual we need your help to grow the wildlife family. Please do subscribe to the podcast and if you're listening on Apple Podcasts We'd love it if you could leave us a review or if you're listening on another platform such as Spotify, how about you just share us with a friend? So from everyone at This Wildlife Podcast, thank you so much for your support. And remember, we're here to bring the wild to you.